0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith Weekly.
1: Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up real quick, and then we've got two special interviews for this episode. We're first going to sit down with the Executive Director and Editor of Baptist News Global, Mark Wingfield, as Mark talks about the 2021 Southern Baptist Convention and all the glory it was. And then later on in the pod, Autumn and I... I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Reverend June Joplin. Reverend Joplin came out last year in a sermon identifying as a transgender woman, and she is just an absolute delight, and you will not want to miss that interview. So stay tuned.
2: I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel, from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org.
1: Autumn, I survived the SBC 2021.
0: Yeah, well, we weren't in Nashville uh, with them. And so I think that's probably a big key in our survival.
1: Yeah, I, I did put up a pe- plexiglass between me and my screen just to make certain none got on me.
0: Yeah. Mm, <laughs> no, no, there's not enough germ gel left in the world post COVID. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I mean, I just don't know. Like, I just always think about that line in um, Fiddler on the Roof when they ask the rabbi, Rabbi, is there a prayer for the czar? And the <laughs> rabbi says, the Lord bless and keep the czar far away from here. <laughs> That's sort of how I feel about the SBC. The Southern Baptist Convention, for those of you who don't know.
1: Right. Well, you know, you know, God bless them. Uh, you know, I grew up a Southern Baptist. I know you did as well. I always do give them extreme credit for laying a great biblical foundation for me as as a child. Um, You know, I did have have great growing up experiences in the church. Uh, Certainly started to see changes in Southern Baptist life uh, during the 1980s as they moved more and more to a conservative bent uh, until it was just full-blown fundamentalism at one point. And, of course, as the story goes, uh, Baptists like us were ushered out of the building and uh, formed the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and the Alliance of Baptist, uh and some other denominations. And some of us uh, went to the Methodist Church, to the UCC Church. There's this big diaspora of uh, Baptists all across the country. And to be quite honest with you, when I left, I left and did not anticipate <laughs> did not anticipate having to go back to a Southern Baptist convention. But now, as part of the media, hmm we covered the event, uh, even though it, we covered it virtually, and it was just, it was interesting to kind of step back into that space, uh, even virtually, um, to just feel like you're getting beat up on for no good reason, I mean, just, they just take pot shots all the time at other mm-hmm. people, and mm-hmm. it's just like, uh, okay, you guys, yay, you do what you're doing, uh, but uh, I just don't understand it.
0: Yeah. There's something about it though. You know, we were talking with someone else off air um, yesterday who came from sort of that Southern Baptist tradition Mm. and is now doing, you know, completely different things. And it's sort of like, I spent some time um, in my youth in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, people like to s- uh, r- r- toot, toot, right, exactly. <laughs> I have the grit stains in my eyes, like the scars to prove it. But people like to say about Lubbock that it's a good place to be from,
3: mm-hmm. meaning
0: mm-hmm. like you don't stay there and right. it's sort of a fertile ground. And I, I think about that from the SBC because there are so many powerful movers and shakers who didn't get stuck there. Yeah. Um, it was a good foundation salt of the earth people like some of the people I love the most in the world belong to the SBC tradition um but yeah it's just hard to watch
1: And to all of our Lubbock listeners, you can send your emails to autumn at (laughs) goodfaithmedia.org. They
0: know. They know it's a good place to be from. They know.
1: (laughs) Well, you and I got uh, the pleasure to sit down with uh, Mark Wingfield this week uh, from Baptist News Global and talk about uh, the Southern Baptist Convention. A lot of interesting things happened this week uh, that Mark uh, talks about in more detail Uh, And so, you know, it's going to be a good interview. Hope uh, everybody listening enjoys it. And then after we talked to Mark, uh, we got to sit down with June Joplin. And I mean, gosh, is there any better person in the world than Reverend June Joplin?
0: No, although I did get a little lost when y'all started talking about hockey. Because (laughs) the only thing I know about hockey is what I Google while I'm watching Letterkenny. I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean?
1: Yeah, we started chirping a little bit uh, about the hockey playoffs. Uh, June and I share a passion for (laughs) hockey, so that was... uh... That was a good conversation. Well, stay tuned for these two interviews. They are both are are, are wonderful and has nothing to do with Autumn and I, but, uh, well, a lot to do with Autumn, but uh, not so (laughs) much me. Uh, But the guests are just outstanding. So stay tuned. They are. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And our first guest on the show this week is Mark Wingfield. Mark serves as executive director and publisher of Baptist News Global. His offices are located in Dallas. Before he became executive director of BNG, he was an associate pastor at Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas for almost 17 years. And before that was in journalism for 21 years. So he's got a lot of experience and we're looking forward to talking to him. He's also a professional journalism throughout those years, regular opinion columnist for both BNG and Dallas Morning News. Mark, it is great to have you with us at Good Faith Weekly.
4: Thank you. A little exhausted from following the SBC this week, but uh, let's talk about it.
1: Oh, man. Well, that's what we brought you on here for today. Uh, first of all, let me just say uh, Baptist News Global did an outstanding job this week uh, covering uh, the details of the meeting uh, there in Nashville. Uh, kudos to you and your team. I thought you guys did an outstanding job.
4: Thank you. I you often say that uh, even for folks in the SBC, we're 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 sort of the, uh, the news source in the brown paper wrapper. Uh, people inside the SBC uh, read us, but can't admit that they do. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, mm-hmm. so,
1: Mark, let's just let's just get to it um, right off the bat. I mean, you were an associate pastor for seventeen years at Wilshire. I was a pastor for twenty something years in Texas and Oklahoma, and now both of us find ourselves in uh, in the media world. I don't know about you, but during those years uh, in ministry in local churches. I never went to the Southern Baptist convention and it was
4: glorious.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But now we find ourselves back uh, in the fold, having to to attend and and cover these events, uh, even though they're virtual.
4: Yeah. So, um, you know, i worked uh, 21 years in the denomination and was at every SBC during that time, pretty much that, well, most of that time Mm. uh, as a working journalist, so been there a lot, um, seen all of those, seen all the stuff. Um, but uh, watching the SBC this year and tending virtually, uh, was the first time I had participated in an SBC annual meeting in 20 years. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in a way it's like, uh, going back home and finding that the furniture is all still in the same place and the wallpaper is still the same. It's just that there's, you know, different people walking through there, yeah. uh, a lot has changed, but a lot has not changed, and uh, it's so funny. I think the funniest thing I noticed—not funny, ha ha, but funny odd—is the definition of a moderate now. Because back when we were attending the SBC, we were the moderates, right? Which was a sl- you know it, it, it's then and now it's it's a slam as someone who's liberal, but who counts as a moderate in the SBC today? is nowhere near what any of us were when we were labeled moderates. It's just the same label on people way, way to the right of us. Mm
1: -hmm. Right. Yeah. And let's just talk about that uh, uh, on the top here because uh, it was strange to open up New York Times, Washington Post this week and see that a moderate is now the president of the Southern Baptist <laughs> Convention. Uh, there was some concern at the SBC that the ultra-conservative group head uh, by uh, Mike Stone, who was a candidate for president, would win the presidency. Uh, he was defeated uh, only by 4.71%, which translates into a little over, I think, 500 votes. 500, 500 votes, yeah, 556 yes. 556 Votes. Uh, he was defeated by um, Ed Litton uh, from Alabama, who, as, uh, as the Times and Post uh, reported, was a moderate in Southern Baptist life. But, I mean, Mark, is the SBC moderate?
4: There's nothing moderate about the SBC. Uh, so I think you've got to consider that you have this, just imagine a long, wide spectrum of religion in American life. Uh, if you could see me, you could see me stretching out my arms as far as they reach, right, there's the spectrum and go to the right side of that, <clears throat> and within there there's a small segment that represents the southern Baptist convention so if you if you focus in on that small segment, yes, Ed Litton is a moderate within that small segment that does not make him a moderate within the larger scope of uh, American religion, and the other interesting thing is uh. Maybe I've not been, I mean, I've never heard of Ed Linton before this. And I think a lot of people have never heard of Ed uh before this. And he seems by all accounts to be a nice guy. Um, and and by the way, his immediate predecessor, JD Greer, who's also very conservative but kind, uh, did a tremendous job in moderating. I mean, one of the best presiding jobs I've ever seen at a Southern Baptist Convention. The guy was smooth and gracious and really uh, efficient in, in what he did so you know two big, big thumbs up to him <clears throat> but within this narrow spectrum that represents the southern mass convention there is this battle going on and it seems to be uh between uh sort of unity and purity is the or the, the labels that i've used so uh ed Lytton represents unity whatever that means and Mike Stone represents purity because there's this conservative, ultra ultra conservative wing that you mentioned that is all about doctrinal purity and uh, demanding uh, uniformity on things. But Mark, they haven't, they we, are the, haven't we yeah, heard
1: this it. song? Haven't we heard this song before? Uh,
4: yeah, we've we've we've, <laughs> we've uh, danced to this song before. Uh, same song, hundred and third verse. It's just there's different people on dance floor.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it seems like this is the natural progression of fundamentalist uh, theology is that you constantly have to be uh, outing or rooting out, I should say, uh, unpure, using your words, unpure theology and belief systems. Uh, That's the only way for fundamentalism to truly thrive is when it has somebody or something to attack.
4: And- yeah, that's what I learned in seminary. Fundamentalism always has to have an, have an, have an enemy. Right. Um, yeah, and we see that playing out. A- absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so I guess, you know, with Ed now as president, and, and certainly, is there, do you think that there's hope? Is this a new, gentler, kinder SBC that we're looking at?
4: No. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I think what they did is they saved off the worst. Uh, you know th- they're, they're still headed on a very narrow trajectory as we can talk about with the resolutions that were passed the motions that were passed uh, it I mean this is still a crowd of people who are largely trump voters right. who uh, see the world in that way who are anti-abortion anti-gay with equal fervor mm-hmm. who really are against uh teaching race and racism but have Gotten smart enough to realize they can't say that out loud anymore because they're going to run off the black and brown pastors and churches that are the sole source of growth in the denomination.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, like we said earlier, uh, the vote tally for the presidency was only or the the difference uh, differential was only 556 votes. Um, it does seem like it's just a matter of time until the ultra conservatives uh, outlast. The, the other folks. Well, maybe,
4: maybe. And here's the interesting thing. So, Mike Stone got that many votes because he had one of the most organized, orchestrated presidential campaigns that the SBC has seen in 20 years since our days there, mm-hmm. right during the so called conservative resurgence. So, there was a lot of gas put on that. You know, one of the things I re- someone wrote, uh, I can't remember, about Ed Litton was that he had a great ability to campaign without appearing to campaign. Right. Um, and that paid off for him, but Mike Stone had all the forces of the Paige Patterson world uh, at his disposal really advocating for him. I mean, literally bussing in messengers again. If Again, we've seen this, oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> we've seen this story before, yeah, right? Yeah, paying people to go to the Southern Baptist Convention. That's what they did. Right. Uh, so that drove up the numbers. So, you know, would that... It, is that really representative of the whole? I don't know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot happened even before the convention got started. Um, a few weeks ago, it was announced that Russell Moore had stepped down uh, for the from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC. Uh, there's been some leaked uh, letters from Moore describing. Um, Some within, or allegations within the uh, executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention of trying to protect their own when sexual abuse allegations rose within the denomination, as well as some racist, bigoted language that has been used. Um, All that kind of culminated on Monday prior to the convention launching on Tuesday at their executive committee report uh, when the committee was asked to expand upon an external investigation or inquiry that's taking place. Uh, The executive committee hired Guidestone Solutions to come in and to look through that, but they control the parameters of what they can look at and there were some outside the executive committee, maybe even some inside the executive committee that wanted a more broad investigation, and they put the kibosh on that quickly.
4: Yeah, what what struck me about this is that uh, Ronnie Floyd's executive committee seems to operate like Bill Barr's Justice Department under the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it it is unbelievable. I I mean, it is mind-blowing To think that the executive committee of the SPC, knowing it was about to be investigated by the convention over its handling of this tinderbox of an issue, decided they would preemptively step in and do their own investigation and have the report come back only to them and think they could get away with it. Kudos to the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention for not giving in to that. And, And boy, that motion? It didn't just pass. It passed overwhelmingly, Mm -hmm. and it was one of three or four slapdowns of the executive committee and Ronnie Floyd and his heavy-handed leadership. I, for the life of me, cannot understand why Ronnie Floyd still has a job today.
1: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that was some positive. It sounds like they are going to take this seriously, uh, investigate what happened. Um, Obviously, this is not – only happening in the Southern Baptist conventions, happening across uh, you know, denominations uh, with uh, abuse, and so you know, it's finally the. But, it's finally, but yeah, like,
0: as a as a Baptist though, when everything was sort of on fire in the Catholic Church a few years ago, there were so many Baptists sitting on their high stack of hymnals and pointing. Right. <laughs> That's right. And I just think it's such <laughs> a come up, and it's like, hmm. Yeah. Maybe right. there was some more going on within. So I'm I'm glad that there's light being sh- shined
4: here. Yep, absolutely. 100 percent So yeah, well, and, and we've got to thank the Houston Chronicle and the Austin American yeah. Statesman absolutely. for really, you know, doing yes. the, the heavy lifting on this. But there's so many stories that have come out and are still coming out. And uh, again, just so you're so everyone listening understands. The defense the executive committee and others give on this is an interesting one. It is, look, all of our Baptist churches are autonomous. We have no ability to control from a denominational level uh, who is ordained, who's called to serve a church. Uh, That's a legitimate defense. But they leaned on that so much that they've just essentially looked the other way when they could have provided some other resources. Right. And you know, it's a slippery, slippery slope, uh, for sure, but there's gotta be some middle way that no one's discovered yet.
1: Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another issue, uh, that seemed to surface, uh, the SBC was race, uh, saw several messengers wearing no to CRT, uh, heard from the podium, uh, several people denouncing critical race theory, Um, SBC obviously has a history of being a racist organization from its foundation. Uh, They've tried to get past that uh, in the last several decades, Uh, but predominantly like all white run organization, they want to rush to reconciliation without really doing reparative and restoration uh, type of work before reconciliation can take place. So I
4: think talk. you're being generous in saying they want to rush to reconciliation because I'm not sure yeah. everyone really wants reconciliation. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Well, mm-hmm. They, they want they want to hug a person of color. Let's just say that uh, and get a picture taken with it.
0: They want to say, I As, have a black friend. Right. Well, I have yeah, a black friend. There you friend, go. There you so, go.
4: There. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me repeat something I said earlier that's very, very important. Without the growth of black and brown congregations in the SPC, the decline in the SBC would be precipitously more than it already is. The only growth happening in the Southern Baptist Convention is in congregations of color and multi-ethnic congregations. It is not in the white congregations. And so, you know, this plays out in so many ways when you see uh, persons of color being nominated for first and second vice president positions mm-hmm. but not for president positions in, in the SBC right. uh, th- there's always a tokenism involved yep. here and we saw that on full display again this year yeah
1: um so race i mean we had several african american prominent african american pastors uh, openly leave the sbc prior to the convention Some saying that depending on how things went during the convention that they were going to leave. Um, Do you see uh, a mass exodus from people of color, the SBC?
4: No, I I think Ed Litton seems to have the track record and the reputation to be someone who is sensitive um, in a Southern Baptist sort of way, sensitive uh, on the race issue and will save that off. Uh, you know, Dwight McKissick is the big bellwether on that, and we've both known Dwight a long time. Uh, Dwight loves to be quoted and uh, is someone who's out there all the time speaking on this. Had Mike Stone been elected, I th- think you know it was a different issue. Right. Uh, so I think they've I think they've bought themselves some time on that. But so I was thinking about what I heard over two days of the SBC meetings. There are two phrases that were used over and over and over again by almost by all sorts of speakers. And they were critical race theory and the watching world. If I never hear anyone say <laughs> the watching world again, it's like they encoded it somewhere when they walked in because all these speakers talked about what the watching world will think of us. That's the exact language they use over and over and over again. So it seems like everyone was suddenly aware that all the eyes of the nation were on them in this annual meeting, and they needed to put up a better front uh, than they had been. Right. And so, except for the most extreme people who really wanted to push critical race theory as the, as the boogeyman, mm-hmm. most of the folks seemed to understand that they needed to be against critical race theory without calling it critical race theory. Right. And that's what we saw come out in the resolutions, uh, was a, was a way to address... This denial of systemic racism Mm -hmm. uh, without offending black and brown pastors by uh, by attacking critical race theory. Uh, So, you know,
0: it's just gaslighting. (laughs) It's it's the same thing, right? Right.
1: Right. Uh It's
4: really the same thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, it was an interesting week. Uh, I only could get through one day of it, so kudos to you <laughs> for sticking in today. Uh, you know,
4: the, the the other thing, just quickly to to point out, is uh, the SBC passed the most strident language is ever passed against abortion. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, like the Republican Party uh, of today, abortion is the end all issue here. And this this uh, this resolution that was passed was so strident that the resolutions committee declined to put it forward, uh, despite the fact there had been an advanced campaign uh, for it, and they were handing out copies of it to messengers at the at the meeting. Right. Uh, and so, this this is really significant because it calls for a total and complete and immediate. Ban on all abortion in all circumstances, uh, no exclusions. Yeah. And there are there were voices within the convention saying, "Wait, this is too extreme." Right, uh, but, but I, they, they they didn't prevail.
1: Well, after the last four years and the the shift of the Supreme Court uh, with the um, seating of uh, Amy Coney Barrett, now I mean th- they uh, are seeing hope that they can get uh, Roe v. Wade repealed. Um, I'm still not there yet. Uh, I still think that the court will, will uphold uh, precedent at that point. Um, We just got word uh, just a moment ago for the third time, the Supreme court has upheld Obamacare. Um, So that's, you know, it's a piece of good news, but uh, yeah, I think they see an opening um, and they're going to push and push and push until they can get uh, Roe v. Wade uh, in front of the Supreme court again, so that they, in their opinion can repeal it. So.
0: I just think it's so interesting that you could be so hide the ball on sexual abuse and so shine a light on abortion. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Like the fact that those two like issues are holding the same space speak volumes about where the motives are.
4: Well, yeah. So sexual abuse is committed mainly by men. Uh, Abortion is something that's a decision made by a woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yep. yeah. It's patriarchy. And,
1: and there 100%. in a nutshell, you define the theology The of Baptist convention. <laughs> <laughs> it's that simple.
4: <laughs> it is yeah. that simple. Yeah.
1: So, well, Mark, once again, thank you. Thank you, uh, or thanks to your team at BNG for doing such a great job covering this. Yeah, matter. thanks I'm so much. much so. I've got one question before we let you go, though, uh, and this is from two Okies to a Texan right now, which you know we'll claim you as an Okie since you spent some time yeah. here, uh, <laughs> but there, there is a large border there right now. Uh, and it's not just uh, the Red River. How are those uh, thermostat temperatures going down on that grid? <laughs> <laughs> are you are you really setting your AC at uh, eighty four to sleep at night?
4: No, uh, I mean we bumped <laughs> ours up to seventy eight yesterday. Uh-huh.
1: God, I saw it, it that. I'm uh, sitting in the dark a lot. I saw yeah. that news coming out. It's really scary, to be honest with you, because it's hot down in Texas.
4: Yeah, no, it's 100 degrees here and uh, extreme humidity as well, and. You know, but by golly, our governor's going to build his own border wall. So, um, <laughs> well, at least he's got his priorities straight.
0: And he came down yeah. on critical race theory. So clearly he's, he's in the right spot.
4: Yeah, right? that's right. This yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But you know, your, your governor's been all concerned about the shortage of Chick-fil-A sauce. So,
1: oh yeah. Yeah. He's
0: Listen, been... we take no pride in it. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't think it could get worse than Mary Fallon. They yeah.
1: did. <laughs> <laughs> Local, Oklahoma said, hold my iced tea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, Mark, it's always a joy to have you on the show. Appreciate yeah, everything so you guys do, and uh, to our audience, stay tuned. Uh, Autumn and I sat down earlier this week with Reverend June Joplin from Toronto, Ontario. June uh, came out last year, in fact, a, a, exactly a year ago this week, uh, identifying as a transgender female. And Reverend Joplin is an absolute delight. So, stay tuned for that interview. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, the Reverend June Joplin. She's the Associate Pastor of Programs and Congregational Care at Metropolitan Community Church in Toronto, Ontario. One year ago this week, June delivered a thorough, compassionate, and bold sermon to her previous church as she came out to her congregation identifying as a transgender woman. Her sermon and accompanying news were met with a tremendous amount of support from her friends and colleagues. However, her church did dismiss her soon after her announcement. She is a member of the Good Faith Media Strategic Advisory Board and a dear friend of mine. We share an affinity for professional hockey as she is a Carolina Hurricane fan while I bleed Boston Bruins black and gold. We had to wait for both of them to get knocked out of the playoffs before we could conduct (laughs) this interview because we would have dropped gloves. So without uh, further ado, Reverend June Joplin, welcome to Good Faith Weekly.
3: Thank you so much for having me back. It's so so lovely to be here again.
1: And the Canes had a good run. The Bruins had a good oh, run, but we yeah. we just ran into two buzzsaws. So that, it was such a happens. good
3: regular season, and the postseason is just a whole different. It's like a different game, literally top to bottom.
1: So it is. It is. So oh well. Uh, Well, we're glad you're with us. Uh, Golly, this must have been a very emotional week for you. As I said in the introduction, that was one year ago this week. In fact, we're conducting this interview on the exact anniversary of that uh, incredible sermon uh, that you delivered uh, last year during the pandemic. Um, I just can't imagine what you must be going through this week, but I mean, you're an incredible minister. I have just been inspired by your story. So, as you think back to one year ago, what comes to mind? Um. Well,
3: um. You know, I think I could just listen to you say things like that for the rest of the episode. <laughs> uh, go on, go on. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> I love it. it. It was. It was. um, it was a heck of a week this time last year um as you might imagine that was a sermon that got quite a bit more work and scrutiny and 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 rewrites and you know it was one that um i was running by other friends um it, it was one that i i wrote and rewrote and had been thinking about for a long time um it was a busy week. I, I hadn't had a chance to come out to my parents before that week. And so when I got the sermon written uh, around Wednesday of that week, I, I said to my parents, hey, I'm going to send you a copy of my sermon for Sunday. I want you to read it and give me a call when you're done. And mm-hmm. uh, and so that that kind of kicked off a, a, a stressful couple of days. My mom and dad love me very dearly, but they've you know, they've struggled a bit with. Um, with my transition and and the news that they have a daughter that they didn't know they had, right. we, we still actually haven't been in one another's physical presence because of COVID. So sure. that was kind of the, you know, as, as tumultuous as the Sunday was the, the week before was, was kind of tough, but mm-hmm. you know, I was surrounded that week by dear friends, um, folks that I've known for 20 years or more we had a really lovely zoom call that the the night before um and i just tried to soak in their love and support and encouragement um i was practicing live streaming because the sermon itself was posted on my former church's youtube channel but then my also my personal channel um and so i had been working all week trying to figure out how to do that. Uh, cause I'm not super tech savvy, but managed to get that figured out. And, um, it was just a, it was a busy week wrote, um, three letters that week. And as soon as I finished the sermon, I clicked send on letters to my church and letters to the board of directors and letters to my staff. And, um, and then just kind of checked out for the week. Sure. Um, and, uh, it was, you know, the, what I found, and like you said in your introduction, the, the outpouring of support was overwhelming. I think the folks who were not supportive just didn't, they weren't talking to me, Sure. which is, you know, in retrospect, it would have been nice to hear from some of the unsupported people. But right. at a time when I really needed to feel that support, it was good to to just mostly hear nothing but, you know, we're proud of you, we support you or Even like we don't quite understand this, but we're willing to um, walk this journey with you. And um, I was I was hearing from people that I hadn't talked to in years, and and you know it was a it was a profoundly encouraging day, and it felt just like an enormous weight was being lifted off my shoulders. And here's this huge, huge stressor, this huge piece of trauma that I've been worrying about and carrying around for literally decades, and now I don't have to carry it around anymore. So you know, praise God.
1: Yeah. And that's such a great story to hear because we've come such a long way. We you know, granted, we've got a long way to go as a church, but to hear the outpouring of support and love for you uh after the sermon is just really inspirational to me because, you know, ten years ago we certainly wouldn't have been there. And you'd I probably think you're right. you'd probably succumb to, you know, a lot of criticism, outspoken criticism but uh, people were there quickly uh, to to wrap their arms around you and love you and that was just that just that's a great testimony to hear and anybody uh, who's wanting to listen to June's sermon you can go to pastorjune.com and the sermon is uh, right there on the homepage it is one i certainly highly highly recommend
0: yeah so unfortunately after your sermon your previous congregation let you go I can't imagine how hard that must have been for you. Um, in many cases, like the one you experienced, the person would leave the Universal Church altogether, um, and and no one would blame you,
3: but you didn't. Why? Um, oh, that's such a good question. Um, I thought about it. Um, sometimes I wanted to, um, but I kept getting pulled back um, in. I fully didn't
0: God just like that.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, we, I, was, I was talking about this the other day with um, a couple other uh, colleagues about, I don't know if it's a uniquely Baptist thing, but we talk about this twofold calling that when we're called into ministry, we have this inner sense that the spirit is moving within us saying, you know, you should do this with your life. You should be a minister. But then the, the people of God and whatever manifestation they take also say, you should do this. Come be our pastor or come work with us, come serve with us. And so that, Sometimes when the inner calling isn't loud and clear, it's that external calling that is the one that, that gets you through. And I was fully prepared for the sermon I preached a year ago today to be the last one I ever preached, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and in a sense, I just wanted to say everything I needed to say. Um, I knew that it was not going to be a June saves her job sermon, so I shifted my priority to, okay, what, what do I, what should I say? What can I say to that? Hopeful, hopelessly, like repressed and closeted 12 year old trans girl in youth group. Like I was in 1992 or whenever that, that she would have really needed to hear a pastor say. And, um, and so I said all those things and figured, you know, if, if that's it, that's okay. I, I, Delivered what I feel like is probably the most consequential sermon I'll ever deliver, um, and you know, and it was the last sermon I ever got to preach for that community. But the Sunday after I lost my job, I was virtually in the pulpit of St. Charles Avenue Baptist in New Orleans, and then the next week I was in First Baptist Worcester, Massachusetts, and the next week I think I was in two different churches. I was in. Um, Uh, First Baptist Rochester and I think a church in Toronto. And there was a point um, somewhere around January, February of 2021 this year where I had been in more churches than there had been Sundays since I got fired. So there were literally weeks that I had to preach like three sermons for three different churches and I would just pre-record them and send them because that's something we can do during COVID. So um, one of the things that's cut me in it is just people have been asking for me. And that's been one of the big shocks, I think, about this past year is that people want to hear my story uh, reporters want to talk to me um you know i was on television and that was the strangest thing um <laughs> i think that has ever happened to me um and in, in a lot of those cases in those churches i you know i'm standing in in pulpits even virtually that no trans person has ever filled before mm-hmm. and Statistically, you know there are trans folks in those in those congregations. There are folks who are questioning their gender identity. There are folks that are questioning their orientation. Um, there are folks who have trans loved ones. Um, and, and so just to occupy those spaces um, and to be there for that representation, that's been one of the big things that's kept me, um, that's kept me doing this work.
1: You know, June, one of the things that I immensely appreciate about you, your story is certainly unique. Uh, it's one that I've you know, I've already s- said before, I'm inspired by on a daily basis. But your ability to rise above um, a congregational rejection and to immediately embrace this greater calling upon your life or this different calling upon your life, um, as far as now your congregation, is pretty much global. And so you're, you're preaching uh, on the Internet, you're preaching in different churches uh, across the country. To me, the reason you were able to do that is because you had a strong and real sense of your ecclesiology, of who the church really is. That the church is broken, the church is fallen, the church is also beautiful at the same time, and the, in this family that we call congregation and the church, that even if you're rejected by one, you will be embraced by another. That quickly, and I think that's where we are as a church. and And I've heard you talk about this throughout your career. Your ecclesiology is just is just astounding and uh lovely and i think you had a a great grasp of what the church is about that helped you through this process
3: uh yeah i i think this last year has given me experiential uh, well an experiential um encounter with that church that is broad and deep and wide and um when it, it, when I was in seminary, I really fell head over heels in love with church history, and a lot of church historians will tell you that church history is where you kind of get to sneak in, like, the really progressive stuff, because church history, you know, there's been a lot of pretty narrow, pretty unfortunate, violent, you know, you name it, misogynistic, colonial, homophobic, transphobic, like, you can you can point to just about anything over over the history of the church, and maybe even that's the the, the larger current, but there's always these undercurrents. Um um I I I need to talk to them about this but I I I've had a few conversations with bishop elect Reverend Dr Megan Roer oh, uh, and okay. I want to use all of their titles cuz it's a pretty big deal that yeah. they're about to become the first openly trans um uh bishop in I probably the world but certainly in the Evangelical Lutheran mm-hmm. Church um and they talk about and they always say well I'm I'm the first trans bishop since the Nicene Council. And and I always wonder, okay, can you can you explain that to me? (laughs) But like really, no, this is we're not new. Um and and when you have that broader understanding of just how big the church is, Mm -hmm. uh you kind of realize that, you know, you're you're not alone, even if you feel um, as a trans minister, um, that you, gosh, I must be the only one out there. Well, no, you're not. Um sometimes I think my story has been told with this with this degree of novelty mm-hmm. and, and i mean it's kind of uncommon but I'm, I'm often quick to point out that you know i have been repeating and repeating the story of for instance nancy Ledens, who was a roman catholic priest who transitioned in like 1976 1977 mm-hmm. um, when she transitioned just the way it was covered in the media we would consider extremely transphobic by mm-hmm. contemporary standards she faced death threats. I think um, her her car was firebombed. Um, you know, things that I never had to deal with. Of course, she never served as a Catholic priest again, but um about a decade later, when she kind of eased back into congregational life, she was a lay minister at Wedgwood Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. And so Nancy's that reminder that there have literally been trans clergy for my entire life and then even before I was born. And so um yeah the church is a lot broader if you're rejected one place you'll be you'll probably be embraced another
1: um, so over the last year what what has been the best piece of advice that someone has given you
3: Oh goodness that's a tough one you know as a minister you you show so much grace to other people it mm-hmm. sounds like you need to show yourself the same grace that you're showing other Love people that. and that that was so I- that was actually i i mean like a twenty three year old MSW student at a therapy intake said that to me, and it's probably the most profound and and a transformational piece of advice uh, that I've gotten throughout my journey of transition. Because you know, we put so much pressure on us. Um, I think as clergy, we put a lot of pr- pressure on ourselves to kind of conform to the profile, and uh, mm-hmm. we can't be vulnerable, and we you know we can't um, show weakness, and we can't struggle, and uh, um, but yeah as a church we've got to be the kind of community where those kinds of things are okay
1: yeah and if there's a message that clergy need to hear right now after this year of pandemic and being shut out of their congregations it's that one the clergy as they have been extending grace need to extend that grace to themselves because there's yep. a lot of them who are struggling right now uh, sure considering leaving their pulpits uh, just having a tough time so yeah um, so our prayers go out to them, but also what a what a great piece of advice. Give yourself grace.
0: Yeah. And that's true for for mamas and daddies mm-hmm. and grandparents and teenagers. Like if you're living this life, like extend the same grace to yourself that you extend to everyone else if you're a nice person. If you're not a nice person, then maybe extend a little more. If
1: you're nice person, you're not a if you're not a nice person, so, you might be you might be in Nashville this week attending a certain meeting. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> I'm
0: gonna throw some shade. Maybe.
1: No, I'm just I'm just saying.
0: <laughs> okay, so looking back over the last year, you now find yourself in a new congregation and embracing some new opportunities. With Pride Month underway in June, uh does pun intended, right? uh, <laughs> yeah. does this year have any new meaning for you?
3: You know, um, so I'm, I'm doing a lot of guest preaching in June. And again, like showing yourself that uh, grace, what I've realized is, you know, I don't have four or five sermons to give on Pride Month. And so um, as folks have reached out to me and said, hey, can you preach for us for Pride? I, you know, I've, I've answered that. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, I have a sermon that I think will work really well. I'll pre-record it. I'll send it to you the Friday night before. Don't ask me to help you with worship planning. Don't ask me what hymns I want. That's not my job. Get your own folks to do that. I'm going to send you a sermon on Friday evening, and it's going to be the same one that I sent every other church in June, but it's a good one, I promise. And um, and so I've been doing a lot of that. Uh, but the first time I recorded my Pride Month sermon for June, um, at the end of the sermon, you know, as I was kind of closing out and saying, "Thanks be to God, Amen," and all that, I said, "Happy Pride," and and. The moment I I hit stop on the record button, I realized what I had just said in the Mm -hmm. context of preaching. And um, I was moved almost to tears. Mm -hmm. Um, I I get to that place every now and then. Uh, A couple of weeks ago before June, (laughs) I was um, at MCC Toronto and myself and Reverend Jeff and Reverend Dina, our pastoral team were recording a communion liturgy for pride month. And, you know, here's a here's a gay uh pastor, a lesbian pastor, a trans pastor all standing at the communion table wearing our rainbow colored stoles and trans colored stoles and masks and 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 saying, "You're welcome at this table, no matter who you are
0: sounds like actually heaven
3: it, yeah <laughs> and and I mean, there was a moment when I was standing there behind that communion table and and it kind of hit me, June, look where you are right now
1: mm. mm-hmm. what a beautiful and, moment
3: and it just kind of. It just hits me in these waves, and it's overwhelming. Yeah. I was in a board meeting at MCC Toronto. Um, I, you know, I'm an associate pastor. I don't go to all the board meetings, but I go now and then, and I realize this is the first church board meeting that I have ever attended where I'm not sitting here and in the back of my head thinking, okay, like, what's what's my plan for talking to these people about becoming more open and affirming? Mm-hmm. I don't have to have that conversation anymore. I don't have right. to worry about... How we might actually do right by welcoming all people um, because I'm there, and so it means it means a lot, even though in our case all the pride stuff is happening virtually. Um, it, it, it's It's such a beautiful and and cathartic and healing thing to be part of a community of faith that really sees the the sacredness of Pride Month. I I spoke about this in the sermon, you know, I preached yesterday for MCC and that that's on our YouTube channel. Um, And I I talked about how, you know, last year, I, a year ago today, I, I, I preached a sermon about seeking treasure and the treasure I was seeking was simply my identity, my authentic self. And this year the treasure I'm seeking is really that sense of, of pride. That's, you know, our theme this, this year for pride is unashamed and fiercely proud. And, um, you know, sometimes I struggle with that sense of like unashamedness and mm-hmm. fierce pride mm-hmm. um, because I used shame as a coping mechanism for decades. It That's was true. the thing that kept me safe. It was the thing that helped me fit mm-hmm. in. It was the thing that prevented me from getting fired or crushed or whatever. <clears throat> and so it's very difficult to then one day preach the sermon and say, this is who I am. And all, OK, the shame's all gone now. It just dissipates. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. Yes. So th- this thing that has really helped you adapt becomes maladaptive now. And, and so I'm working on getting, I'm, I'm working on moving past it. Um, but pride is really, you know, I, I think some folks in some faith circles and some corners of the church kind of get hung up on the language of pride. Cause you know, our faith teaches us that we're that pride is a sin. And, mm-hmm. um, you know we're not talking about like arrogance or haughtiness or some of that stuff that you read about you're just you know pride in the context of this the celebrations in june is really about taking all that stuff out there that like bad theology or the society or you know your family of origin or whatever has said you know you really ought to be ashamed of yourself or who you love or how you love or how you want to dress you really ought to be ashamed of yourself pride is the is that that thing inside of you that that makes you say no i'm not going to be ashamed of myself and it's not about like um it's not about arrogance it's about just saying no to shame and it's, uh, it's the absence of shame yeah yeah and i'm yeah. working on it i'm getting there so it's not like uh, that.
1: it's the it's the, absence, it's the absence of shame it's also i to me pride represents this incredible boldness to say to community I will no longer be ignored. I will yeah. no longer let you uh, put a barrier between who I am and the rest of the world. And it's, it's this, the world is going to see me. And when I think about Scripture, and one of the things that I've always been inspired by in the New Testament is when Jesus would come into a town and the people he would minister to, it always began the same way. Jesus saw them.
4: And it's
1: it's an endearing relational moment where these people were seen for who they truly were. They weren't, uh, as as culture had defined them or put them in the box, Jesus saw them for who they truly were were and loved them and inspired them and ministered to them. And to me, that's what pride is. Pride, our LGBTQ plus uh, uh, friends, are simply saying, I am no longer going to be ignored and the world is going to see me for who I am. And that is simple humanity. That is a simple human, right? Yeah. Something that everybody should be able to celebrate. So I, I it, it's one of the most moving moment or months in the year for me. Mm-hmm. Now um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, June. Uh, right. you, you are a Canadian citizen and we all No, are, not yet. I'm you're a not permanent
3: president. Yeah, you're a permanent it, it, resident. I'll be a citizen this time next year.
1: Okay. We're, we're sure. still jealous about your health care system up there, but that's another uh, podcast for another time. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think you're still a, a citizen here in the United States. I am, a, I am a U.S. citizen, yeah. Okay. Well, this year, 2021, has been a treacherous year for state legislatures. They have introduced over 100 bills decreasing the rights of transgender citizens. As a, a permanent resident of Canada, a U.S. citizen, as a person of faith, what do you think is going on? What is the reasoning behind this increase in so many anti-transgender bills?
3: Um, you know, I I, I think maybe the simplest answer is that um, folks need um, need an issue for like the point of the spear in the culture wars, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And as, you know, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that issue was more like, you know, um, gay marriage, Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of settled law now, you know, um, I don't, I don't know where it is in the States necessarily, but I know like the, the conservative party here in Canada, um, about the time I moved up here, I want to say around 2015, 2016 removed opposition to gay marriage from its party platform. Um, and so it was, it, you know, it was like, they were saying, okay, this is, it's done. You know, right. we might as well be fighting against, you know, um, desegregation, uh, it, it, because as the, as society progresses towards, um, a more liberated, freer version of itself, there's always going to be some group of people <clears throat> kind of on the front lines of that struggle. And, um, and and this decade or so, it it's it seems to be trans <clears throat> trans rights and trans folks and and it almost um, seems at, as
1: though they're targeting trans children uh, under y- yeah. eighteen with with sports and, and things like that. And and you and I had a conversation many many months ago uh, about how well uh, Canadian junior hockey does in yeah. training. And accepting people and children from the LGBT community, and how they train their coaches on how to be sensitive to that as well.
3: Yeah. Are we still? Are we there? Yeah, I can kind of hear you. I think
2: when when we start talking
0: about like people picking on trans kids, God's like, mm
3: mm. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's a um, idea. One of the, you know, I've spoken at times about how, you know, up until I was 38, 39, almost 40 years old, I would have said, you know, I'm absolutely not a trans person because mm-hmm. I just didn't understand what being trans was. But right. one of the first places that I learned about the concept of, like, gender and gender identity being kind of separate and gender expression being something totally else um, was in um, um, uh, sensitivity training that I had to take in order to manage my oldest son's hockey team back in like 2017, 2018. Mm-hmm. And, and what happened was that um, about a decade ago, there was a young trans man named Jesse Thompson um, who um, was being made to change in the girls' change room and, and brought the Ontario Human Rights, uh, brought the Ontario Hockey Federation up for uh, violation of the Human Rights Code. And he won his case. And one of the results of the case is that coaches now had to learn about how to protect kids from the worst parts of discrimination. And, uh, and so as an adult volunteer in youth hockey in Ontario, you've got to learn about like sharing pronouns and you've got to learn about how to differentiate between, you know, sex assigned at birth and gender identity and gender expression, um, in such a way that, you know, they, they even say like, you're you're not we're not training you to become an advocate necessarily. We're not training you to change people's minds. We are training you so that you can make kids feel safe and welcome. Uh, Because I think I I remember the statistic. I think this is probably from the Trevor project or some organization like that, that says something it's, it's a, it's a pretty high number. I'd say two thirds to maybe 80% of LGBTQ plus kids feel, um, uh, unsafe in sports environments, um, uncomfortable coming out to coaches or teammates, um, unable to kind of be who they really are. And um, one of the things that keeps being said, um, especially in the context of the debates down in the States, is, um, you know, sport is a human right. Um, the option of just saying, no, just don't play is is really not not a viable option. Um So I was impressed with that. And I did some writing about that for good faith media. Cause when, as I was taking that, as I was taking that webinar, essentially, Mm -hmm. I was thinking two, a couple of things. First, I was thinking, wow, this is amazing. Second, I was thinking, you know, Sunday school teachers and youth leaders and people that work with children and youth in churches ought to take the same training. And then third, I was thinking, oh gosh, June, you should be thinking about this stuff for yourself a little, because this is, Teaching you about parts of yourself that you have ignored for too long. Sure.
1: You know, and that's, again, I was so inspired by that story that you told me. Hopefully, uh, we can get there in the States uh, at some point where we're providing mandatory training just to, to help kids feel safe and secure wherever they are, and that every kid deserves that right. Well, well, speaking of that, I got one last question before I hand you off to Autumn and she asked our final question. Um, it's been a year since uh, you. You came out and, again, delivered that inspirational uh, sermon. Um, You must know that there are a lot of people who have been listening to that sermon, watching that sermon over the last year, Um, some individuals who are struggling with maybe their sexual orientation or their gender identity. As a minister, June, what piece of advice would you have for them right now as they're contemplating what to do next.
3: God is with you in the questioning. If you feel like you are stuck between two places, if you feel like you're in the wilderness, um, God is there. You know, I believe in a God who scripture reveals, our history reveals, is present in a particular way in in those liminal spaces and those in between spaces and there's all kinds of grace and all kinds of provision in those wilderness places um if you're where i was you might be thinking like i don't know what comes next i don't know how to plan for what comes next and that's okay too again give yourself grace and put put one foot in front of the other um, that's always that's been my mantra Love it. I, i've been drawn to like the story of the exodus throughout this journey and how it is kind of the it's the classic story in scripture of god making a way where there is no way it's a story about folks who escape an awful way of being and end up you know they're not delivered immediately to like an easy situation it's hard again and a lot of them say well let's go back to egypt you know it sucked but at least you know we mm-hmm. had roofs over our head we had food to eat Sure. so you know god makes a way where there is no way and put one foot in front of the other and keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that and in time you'll be astounded by the the ground that you'll cover um You don't have to see everything now. You don't have to have everything figured out now. You don't have to have all the answers now, Um, but just take the next step.
1: I love that. Take the next step. What uh, great words. Reverend June Joplin, Associate Pastor of Programs and Congregational Care at Metropolitan Community Church in Toronto, Ontario. Her website is pastorjune.com. You can reach out to her and follow her across uh, social media and invite her to preach at your church. I guarantee you, you will not regret it. Reverend June, thank you so much for being with us at Good Faith Weekly. But before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question for you.
0: I think you've given us at least six answers to this already in my <laughs> opinion. So um, you can just rewind and listen to everything again. But as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today, what is your more to tell?
3: One of the things that Mitch said a couple of minutes ago um, that – you know, it syncs up with my story. It, it, it being a story of being rejected in one place and re- embraced in another. Mm. There are lots of places in the church that will embrace you. Um, there are more uh, there, there. There are more convictionally accepting Christians in the United States than there are those who are not. Now we might not all go to churches that are that way, but we should. Mm. Um I recently heard a pastor describe open and affirming churches as unicorn churches, and that's a cute idea, but I think it's also a bad idea because we're not there rare we're everywhere there you go I have preached in church you know I preached in a little church in Catawba County, North Carolina, where I'm from that began as a Bible study in an office above a gay bar um, mm. in Catawba County, North Carolina. Mm. Everywhere you go, there are faith communities that you can belong to either as an unashamed ally or as someone who's out as part of the LGBTQ plus um, community. And um, those places are there. If you are not at an open and affirming church, why not? It's not too late to leave your church and go to one where all are welcome means all are welcome. And I want to challenge you to do that.
1: I love that. Because they're out there. They are. They are indeed. Well, Reverend Joplin, thank you again for being with us on Good Faith Weekly. It's been a delight.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: To our listeners, we thank you for tuning in once again. Until Autumn and I get back to you next week, keep living good faith.
0: And
3: happy happy Pride.
1: Happy Pride. Happy Pride.